Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm so excited to be back with you all after a pretty long break. 2022 was just an insane year. I was trying cases all over the place, four trials in four different district courts around the country. But uh, 2023 start off with a little bit of a break as we get ready for the next wave of trial. So I wanted to get a bonus episode out to you. We're also preparing for season five. Uh, we have a, an unbelievable set of guests coming up for season five, which will probably come out towards the end of the summer or the fall. But in the meantime, I have this bonus episode with my good friend from Boston, Douglas Brooks. Doug Brooks is one of the great trial lawyers out in Boston, and he recently represented the Harvard fencing coach in one of the Varsity Blues offshoot cases. And you're going to hear some amazing stories about how he outmaneuvered the prosecution uh, time and again and won an acquittal in this case. We also did this interview as part of my white collar class uh, at the University of Miami School of Law. So we'll go for about an hour with Doug uh, talking about the trial and the ins and outs of the case. And then you're going to hear from uh, some questions from my students as a little bit of a bonus after about an hour. So we're going to get to Doug Brooks in For the Defense next. Peter Brand, uh, a 70-year-old guy. Uh, he was born in Israel. His parents were Holocaust survivors, and they lived uh, in a kibbutz. And for those of you who don't know, it's a kibbutz is a uh, sort of like a small communal village. Um and he actually grew up uh, in, the, in the Golan Heights. Uh, they sort of grew up in this area where there were regular battles between the Israeli and the Syrians. And he, he lived there until he was uh, 13 years old. And then he moved uh, to the United States. Um, and he settled uh, in the Boston area where I am. Uh, and he was uh, a, an excellent fencer. Um, after graduating college, he went into social work and he was a social worker for uh, over 34 years. Uh, and some of that overlapped. He, he went back into uh, coaching fencing. And in 1999, he became the head coach at, of Harvard's fencing program. I, I don't know. I, I didn't know anything about fencing before this case. I still don't know that much, but, you know. Uh, well, as the government, the, go the government said that it's basically sword fighting. And I, and I guess that's correct. But there's a lot more to it than that, as I learned. I saw that in their opening. They, they came out and said uh, sword fighting. I mean, so. How did um, is that what it is or what? Tell us a little about what fencing. Is. Yeah, I mean, yes. Although I think for those people that do it is that's probably a little disparaging, but there's. There's three different uh, types of weapons, um, and they they all have different ways of scoring. And it's it's you know it's it's a one of these it's a team sport, but it's at the same time it's all individual. Um, so in a way like a like a wrestling where there's a team, but you know at any given time it's just one on one. It, it is something that's great about the law, right? Like. Especially criminal defense. Every case you get to learn a new industry, a new business, or, or you know, in this right. case, fencing. I mean, there's there's really nothing else like it. I mean, as you say, you probably knew nothing about fencing before you came into this, and now you're an expert. Right. Yeah. And and in this case, also, sort of, I'd say, not just the fencing, but things that I really didn't know too much about uh, that I, you know, 
in fact, even more relevant than the fencing is the the college admissions process. Right. Um, and in this case, especially at Harvard. Right. Which I think is just fascinating. And, you know, I got a flavor of it from, from the motions and the opening closing. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Let, let me ask you before we get there. So how do you get a case like this, a 70-year-old fencing coach at Harvard, you're a criminal defense lawyer. I always like asking um, the, my guests how they get cases, because when I started as a criminal defense lawyer, you know, it's it's a mystery how you land the case. So how did you find this? How did yeah, it, no, no, it's, a great, it, it's a great question. And, and, and every case sort of comes in differently. This one specifically, uh, there was there's um, the sort of guy who's the sort of guru, you know, Mr. Harvard Fencing is a very successful lawyer in Boston, um, a guy named Larry Citrullo, who is sort of our star witness in this case. Um, and so bef well before the indictment in April 2019, the Boston Globe ran an article um, about this case. And so, you know, Peter Brand turned to Mr. Citrullo for help uh, because he knew him you know, through his Harvard fencing connections, but also knew that he was a successful lawyer. Um, because Mr. Citrullo was, you know, sort of tied into Harvard, uh, he and Harvard felt that there was a conflict in terms of representing Peter Brand in connection with Harvard's investigation. So he referred the case to me. And so at that point, I was representing Peter uh, in connection, you know, there wasn't a criminal case yet, but it was in connection with Harvard doing their own internal investigation. And this was in the wake of all of the so-called varsity blues cases, the, um, you know, the college admissions scandal cases. So when this hit the Boston Globe, Harvard was in full panic mode that they were being kind of that their admissions were being called into question. And so did the Boston Globe article hit after some of the varsity blues indictments? Is that how? It yes, exactly. It, it hit. It hit about two or three weeks later, um, somebody who had heard about the sale of this house, apparently knowing about the, the Varsity Blues cases, thought that this might, you know, be the same kind of thing and dropped a dime to the Boston Globe. And that's how all of this started. And so, you know, you get the case, Harvard's doing an investigation um, because of the Varsity Blues case. Do, do you think, you know, this is going to turn into something or, or you just don't know it at the beginning? Yeah, I, I mean, at the time, that, that's the biggest issue because they, you know, Harvard wants to speak to the client. The client wants to keep his job. And, it, and, and by Harvard, I mean, they hired outside lawyers to investigate. So if so if the, if the, as a practical matter, if, if Peter decided, hey, I'm not going to cooperate at all, you know, he's he's gone. Right. Like they're not going to just knowing how Harvard works, they're not going to keep them. So the first question you got to decide is, do I want my client talking to Harvard in a case that it might end up going criminal? And who knows how his words could be used against him then? This is this is always the hardest issue in these cases. Before there's an indictment, you represent an employee, um, in this case, the coach. So do you let him get interviewed or you say no? Yeah. So. It, you know, every case is different, right? And you don't know, you know, and ultimately, of course, we advise our clients, but it's but it's their call. Um, and the other thing you, you the one thing you know for sure is you you don't have all of the evidence that you will see at a criminal trial. 
So you're sort of relying on your client uh, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways to get it. Um, You know, I I, I was in touch with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors at that time about this this matter, because I I knew that they had at least sent out a grand jury subpoena. Uh, At the time, they seemed very disinterested in it, Mm -hmm. which, of course, turned out not to be the case. But I think it was at the time. And so ultimately, yeah, I mean, a lot of factors, you could do a whole class on just that decision, but he did go in and meet with um, the, the attorneys for Harvard. And so do, just out of curiosity, do the do those attorneys then give the interview over to the U.S. attorney's office at some point or, or they, they hold on to it? No. So, no, what they did here is they 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 held on to because they treat it as a privileged you know, they, they treat that as a privileged communication um, because, you know, in his role, it was in his role as a as a Harvard employee. So they kind of took a hybrid approach here. They did not turn that interview over or anything else that they did as part of their investigation, which, by the way, led to his led to his firing. Um, but what the, they the did interview led to his firing, the interview it did lead to his firing. firing, not that not the interview per se, but the fact that it was sort of, und- you know, we can get, we'll get more into the facts, but the fact that it was undisputed that he took money from a parent, ultimately right. it led to his firing. But so what, what the, those interviews, they, they agreed, they were interviewed by the U S attorney's office, the lawyers that did that, um, the lawyers that did that, um, let's call it, that did the interview. They in turn were interviewed by the prosecutors and they sort of gave the prosecutors a high-level summary, um, which we then saw through what's called the 302, which is an FBI interview report that the government turned over to us. So your your client goes in for an interview. At this point, he's not charged. Um, does the government call you and say, you know, we're going to end up charging him? Do they just arrest him? What do they do? Yeah, no, it, it kind of came out of the blue. So he, there was... He wasn't arrested until a year and a half after that interview. So this wasn't, you know, this wasn't fast moving. Um, We did the interview. You know, he got fired. I I had a couple of calls with the U.S. attorney's office um, where really what they they asked if he they said, you know, at some point they called and said, hey, we're you know, we're still kind of poking around in this case. Does your client want to come in for a proffer, which is where they would interview your, you know, interview the, the client, there's some, some limited protections to the client and that kind of a thing. Um, but but then as we were weighing whether or not that was something we might want to do to potentially head off an indictment, uh, they, they called back and said, if your client is going to take the position that he took with Harvard, that is that this wasn't a bribe, don't bother coming in here. We don't want to hear that. Basically, we only want to hear that it's a bribe and we want him to snitch on, you know, snitch on the parent, you know, gave the money. So. And so so you don't go in um, and and then do they call you back and say, please surrender him or do they arrest? No, 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 no. And, And this was a there was a long gap between anything that happened. I mean, I had sort of was cautiously optimistic that it was dead. I mean, it was months and months. And I just assumed well, you know, they were hoping for something. They don't have the evidence, so they're not going to charge. And out of the blue, 
in it was November, late November, early yeah, late late November 2020. During the height of the pandemic, they went in and they arrested him without a phone call or anything. Without a phone call, you know, again, you've got this guy at the time in his late 60s, sort of knows <laughs> about no reason to believe that he would flee. I mean, just absolutely no reason to arrest him. And in fact, because it was the pandemic, they go and arrest him and they don't even, it, they don't try, they, they're not saying that he's a flight risk really because they didn't try to set any bail, um, at least any cash bail. So they let him out the same day and you know the government didn't argue anyway. So it was really just, just for the sensational impact of arresting him. There was no reason to arrest him. They could have just asked him to come in and self-report. Maybe they were nervous that the late 60-year-old man would use his swords or something. <laughs> that, that might have been it. That would be about the only uh that would be more of a reasonable reason than they than they were able to muster, but yeah, it's one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy in these white collar cases where there's no danger. There's yeah. no they have all of the documents, there's no risk of of anything being destroyed, and they just arrest. Um really it's it's to to show the defendant what he's got coming in. And uh, it drives me bananas. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I can tell you that the the reason given in this district, in Massachusetts anyway, it, which still doesn't make sense, is that they that they, they don't they think like that it would be sort of unfair to the non-white collar criminals that, you know, who right. do get arrested. But you know, my point would be, it's not really about, you know, every case should be looked at differently. And if the person is not a flight risk or a danger, there's no valid reason to arrest them. You know, you know, especially in the white collar cases, you know, most of the time, even in this case where it came as a surprise, but I had been in touch with the U.S. Attorney's Office. They they know he had counsel. They knew he would appear if they just asked him to. But anyway. Yeah. So they, they have the same reason here in in, in Miami as well. And you know, maybe they should um, not arrest uh, poor folks either. Yeah. So so what is the government's theory? Last week, just so you know, we talked in class about typical wire fraud, mail fraud types of cases where there's some sort of property interest yeah. at stake. Here, I think the government concedes there's no property. It's more of an honest services theory. Yeah. So can you explain to the students, you know, this this honest services theory that the government's proceeding on. Yeah, and they had two theories here. So first was honest services, which is this kind of, and it's, you know, it's been up, and there's actually a, a case now in the Supreme Court. It, it's one of these sort of, because it's so vague, it's kind of constantly being struck down in one form or another, but it's upheld. But, but the idea is, that it, it doesn't rely on on money. So the the theory here was that Peter Brand deceived Harvard. The fraud was on Harvard because uh, an employer has a right to expect the honest services of its employee, and and that they said that by allegedly taking a bribe in exchange for his recruitment decision, you know, recruiting these these two young men that that you know deprived Harvard of its of its uh honest services and and, and what's important is it the, the statute itself is a little vague but I think it was in 2010 what the Supreme Court said was 
look, it, it can't be the case. This wouldn't be constitutional if this this violate that that this could be violated, for instance, for violating a conflict of interest policy, right? It, it can't be that every single employment violation is going to violate the statute. So the Supreme Court I, I get fired from the University of Miami uh, uh, if that's the case. I mean, yeah. So what, what, so it has to be a bribe or a kickback. So that's kind of the one protection that you have that you know defendant has under this under this uh, statute. And the other, just quickly, the other charge here was federal programs bribery. And this also is kind of big, but so every university in the country gets federal funding. So because Harvard gets federal funding, it, 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 if, you, if, if you take a bribe in connection with an official act that you make on behalf of Harvard here, the recruiting decision, you have arguably violated the federal program's bribery. So at the at the kind of the end of the day, you know, we had, we had made legal arguments that the judge sort of punted on, but what it came down to really, you know, from the way it was pitched to the jury was this is a bribe case, right? Under either under both of the charges, there has to be a bribe, and that's what you're here to basically decide. So your case isn't technically a varsity blues case, I guess, because Rick Singer wasn't the cooperating witness. But it right. is the same theory as the other, you know, fifty or so varsity blues cases. Yes. So yeah, I mean, it it is it is the same theory. Um, you know, there were slight differences. I mean, obviously, the the best fact we had, which they did not have in the vast majority of those cases, is that there were no there, there were no allegations that you know, Peter Brand lied about their fencing qualifications. You know, in a lot of the other cases, the, the, the kids just didn't play the sports that they were supposed to have played. Right. So so I saw you guys, both you and um, the dad, the lawyer for the dad, stressed how qualified the two boys were. And, and it struck me, by the way, that they were there at the trial, which I thought was incredible. So can, can you tell us a little about the boys and and their qualifications and sort of the admissions process at Harvard and why that was so important. Yeah, so I, I'll say one thing in that. So we had done some some jury research before the trial, um, and one thing that came out very disappointingly was that jurors, the fact that they were qualified for Harvard, didn't that alone just being qualified didn't really help us that much because the sort of the theory being that the jurors bought in the theory like okay maybe they're qualified but look there's a lot of people that are qualified and so they got this leg up maybe because of a bribe that wasn't good so we really had to focus on the fact truthfully that that when you take all of the various factors together these kids weren't just qualified they were no-brainers so the i mean the way it works at harvard is that you cannot get in there as an athletic recruit unless you're academically qualified. So you, you have to meet that bar. And for look, for some of the sports like football and hockey, you can be below like the average Harvard student and, and still get in. I mean, you have to have a decent academic record, but it, you know, the, 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 the average football SAT is not going to be the average SAT of the, the, the students at large. But that's really not true of fencing. I mean, fencing doesn't get any sort of you know pass. So they had to meet that, and then uh, 
Peter Brand's allowed to recruit six students a year, combined men and men and women. And so the government really hadn't done its homework. And they seem to have this theory that like anybody who's a top fencer would love to get into Harvard. Why not? Right. It's Harvard. Why wouldn't anybody want to get in there? Um, but what they what they really didn't understand until the trial was that of all of the, the top fencers in the country, first of all, most, you know, not all of them are going to be qualified to get into Harvard. And what they also missed was that a lot of students, even if a lot of good fencers, even if they are qualified to get into Harvard, they don't want to go to Harvard because they're going to have to pay for it. And they can get full scholarships to top fencing programs, better rated than Harvard at schools like Notre Dame, Ohio State, Penn, Penn State. So very good schools. So, again, the government had this theory. These kids were the, the Zhao boys were ranked, you know, somewhere between like 15 and 17 in the country. And the government's theory was, well, that's good. But, you know, he should have recruited somebody higher. But I don't they really didn't understand how the process worked because they didn't look into it. But it's not just that they were, you know, top 15, 17 in the country. They were also their backgrounds were incredible. Oh, the, these they were. So, again, they, they were the highest academically rated in their classes. I mean, they had like 1600 in the, in the recruiting class, They're like 1600 SATs, straight A's from one of the top, you know, prep schools in the country all sorts of extracurriculars. And the other thing that's that was very important uh, to Peter Brand when he's recruiting them is that a lot, so a lot of top high school fencers use it as a vehicle to get into a, a top school and then they quit fencing. And there's no repercussions because there's no scholarships at a school like our, at any of the Ivy League schools. So if you quit, you just get to stay on. So these these two <laughs> young young men were like really passionate about fencing and they had committed to him and he believed him that they would fence all four years, which he did. And again, that's, that's one of the things that the government just didn't do because they really didn't interview people in the fencing world that understood how it worked. The, the other fascinating thing to me that I saw from your case is that Harvard encourages coaches like, like your client to sort of go after the rich parents, um, yeah. kids with rich parents. Can, can you talk a little about that? Well, yeah, th this was a huge dispute at the trial because Harvard, I mean, that was just, you know, from, from what we knew from the people we talked to, that was so clear and we just thought it was going to be undisputed. Harvard had its witnesses prepped to say the exact opposite. The, the 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 one they ended up only calling one person, although they had a lot more on their witnesses. The government called a person in the admissions who said that, you know, he wouldn't even be aware like that, that uh, uh, the, the wealth of a family was not something that was considered by admissions, which is just an absolute lie. And, and we had a witness who came on the stand who's again, it's this guy, Larry Citrullo, who's been affiliated with Harvard for 50 mm -hmm. years who said there's an it's a free flowing conversation within admissions it's absolutely known who has money so so in terms of whether harvard lost anything we'll, we'll put aside the honest services for a second they got tuition they got great students they got great fencers i mean it's hard to make harvard out to be a victim here it seems like yeah and we 
Yes. I mean, which was another another great fact for us. And again, I don't think going into the trial, the government, full, I mean, I think they understood our, you know, our defense, but I don't think they really understood all of it. Um, and so but that, that's one of the holes in the government's case. Now, you know, the judge ruled before the trial that legally Harvard didn't need to be a, a, a financial victim. But it's, you know, from a from a point of a view of from the point of view of a jury, the case loses a lot of its appeal when there's no victim. And and here, not only was Harvard not a victim, they they, you know, we argued that they these they gained a lot from these two young men, not just because they got straight A's at Harvard and fenced all four years, but because Harvard, not surprisingly, hit up the family for hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations on top of the full tuition that they paid. You know, you're obviously based in Boston. This was a Boston case with Boston prosecutors, but it seemed just from reading some of the transcripts, like you could feel the tension and and how heated it was. Am I was reading that right? Was it heated between the defense and the government throughout the case? Uh, yes. Um, and, and, and actually, really before the case, we... I mean, we we rightfully accused them of fabricating evidence, which they did. So w- one of the things that they wanted in, there was a big fight over, they wanted in the fact that our client violated Harvard's conflict of interest policy, which is why he got fired for taking money from a parent. And we argued that, look, that's irrelevant because it doesn't matter whether he violated a conflict of interest policy. It, it just matters whether it was a bribe. But in any event, what we accused the government of before the before the trial, they had taken these two separate documents and the way that they had produced them to us in different periods of time through some, you know, uh, shenanigans, they attached them as one exhibit as if as if the conflict of interest was attached to this other thing that he signed. Um and that's not the way it had been produced by Harvard. And we only kind of found found out about that through happenstance. So we we filed the motion, you know, accusing the government of misconduct. Um, so so obviously that that uh, raises the temperature quite a bit. And you could just see in trial, I mean, from reading some of these transcripts, you guys were going at it. Um, let, let me ask. So in these varsity blues cases, your case, Roy Black's case, one other case, those were the only cases that went to trial. Everybody else pleaded. And when you speak to some of the lawyers about why, they say, listen, the risks were just too great. If we go to trial and lose, you know, one of these Boston judges might put us, there was one apparently bad or tough sentencer judge. If you're in front of that judge and you lose a trial, you're, you're going to go to jail for years. Yep. And so, you know, the risk is too great. Were you were you in front of a judge that would have been a tough sentencer? I, I don't know how much you can say about that. Yeah, no, I could say uh, so. He he he's not as much as the one that all of the original cases were drawn to. He's sort of right. known as the toughest, you know, the toughest sentencer in this district. Uh, our judge is known as you know, I, I'd say sort of you know down the middle leans government, very much sort of a you know super nice guy. Yeah. As we say, let you try your case. Yeah. But had it not gone our way, th- th- this this would have been a sentence. Th- th- there's no way it would have been less than a year. So this you have would have been a real real time in prison. 
Right. You have a seven-year-old guy um, with cooperation against the dad, probably does no jail time or little right. jail. I mean, those are always such difficult decisions and conversations. What was, and I don't know, again, how much you can say about this, but but was Coach ever interested in, in doing that or he was always trial full steam ahead? So it's funny, somewhere in between. So he actually, I think I'd say this, I mean, he he didn't want, you know, when this first happened, he didn't want to try the case. You know, he just thought it was going to be so hard on him and his family. He sort of just wanted to be done with it. Um but when it it kind of became clear that the only way that he would get a better deal sort of before trial than afterwards, at least in any meaningful way, would be to cooperate cooperate against the dad. And look, he was Peter was steadfast. He just said, look, this wasn't a bribe. I even if I wanted to, I can't cooperate because they want me to say it's a bribe. It wasn't a bribe. It's really interesting. So with all these varsity blues cases, I guess there was 50 some odd. I mean, if all of them had gone to trial, let's say, um, you would expect some percentage would have been acquitted. And yet, you know, almost all of them to a T pled, including, you know, famous defendants like Lori Laughlin. And now there's this case before the First Circuit, which the Court of Appeals looks like they're skeptical of the whole theory in general, and they may reverse um, any predictions on what the First Circuit might do there? Yeah, they're, they're I mean, it, they're almost definitely reversing. And I think just the issue is, what's the fallout when they reverse? Like, what what is a, re, you know, is there going to be a retrial? What does it look like? But yeah, so only four of these cases have gone to trial. So the first one, the two, the two uh, parents were convicted, and that looks like it's going to be reversed and, and probably there'll be a retrial. Then there was a conviction of a coach, but but that's been overturned. That was overturned by the trial judge, and now that's going to go on appeal. And then the other two, uh, ours and the one that uh, Roy Black did, the Corey case, ended up in acquittals. So it's it's, it's kind of, it, it you know, these cases have lost a lot of their luster. Right. right. I mean, the government charges these cases to huge publicity, articles, news, Netflix stories. Um, and, and like a lot of these other white collar cases end up sort of fizzling out at the end of the day. But yet almost everybody pleads guilty. The system seems seems warped. The, this, yeah, it I mean, you're right. You've got these. I mean, the, the, it's a it's a very tough system. And in these cases, the government was very heavy handed with the, especially because, especially in high profile cases, that's what happens. You know, they indict these cases to great fanfare. They know they're going to make a name for themselves, right? I mean, it's not just local news, it's international news, you know, and they do it. And, you know, the public is initially outraged because of how it sounds, but then people start poking around and it's like, you know what, some of these legal theories may not hold up, like, right? Like in the court of public opinion, people were upset that there's, you know, this is what's going on. But, and then, you know, they, they were very heavy handed. I mean, they, they let, they, you know, basically told people in terms of pleading, like, Hey, we'll agree to this sort of sentence, something very light. And if you don't agree, not only is it off the table, but we're going to add all of these charges. Um, in one case, I, you know, they're, you know, sort of thinly veiled threats that, okay, we may, we'll indict your kids, the kids that participated in this, at least the ones that knew about it. 
And so there were things like that. So, you know, kind of, you're right. Like what, you know, it just seems like, why, why do I want to go through all of this when I can just bleed and get it over with? I, I actually felt bad for the kids in your case and in a lot of these cases. I mean, these are good kids who did great in school, worked their asses off, did great in college. And, uh, you know, they now have to live with this the rest of their life. Yeah. And that was obviously we, we made that a major theme in our case. And again, we had our our kids were really like off the charts. Good. Right. You know, which right. was which was a great fact for us. They testified at trial. Um and they were our last two witnesses um, for the defense. And, and they were they were great witnesses. And but yeah, we made I mean, we made that point. We we I, I mean, I, I in, in my opening, I started the case off by trying to compare the punishment that these kids are going under versus the punishment that the government's cooperator, which was none, is going under, even though he had admitted to all sorts of unrelated crimes. I, I love that you, you came out swinging in the opening, especially against the snitch. And and made it a lot about him. Um, so so you know, and, and that was slightly different, I think, than the dad strategy in his opening. Did you work with um, work closely with the co-defendant, or were you guys sort of on separate teams? No, we we had, we worked very close. We had a great relationship with them. Um, and I didn't really know that. I, I knew of them. I didn't really know the two lawyers, Bill Weinreb and Mike Packard, uh, before this case. Uh, Bill Weinreb actually was sort of when this all started, had only recently left. He had been a prosecutor. He only had recently left the office. He'd been the acting U.S. attorney. So I kind of didn't know what to, you know, what kind of what to expect. Um, but they were very easy to, to deal with. We obviously had, you know, in some ways separate issues. But with the bribe case, look, they, they, they you know, one per tech, you know, sort of theoretically, one person could be guilty and one could be not guilty. But if it's a true bribe, right, there's a, you know, one person right. is giving the bribe, one is not. Right. And so we were, we worked great together to make sure we weren't shooting at each other. I, I will say it was to everybody's advantage, but it was especially to our advantage because, frankly, the evidence was much worse against our client than it was against the the dad, the co-defendant. Let me ask you one bit of trial um, um you know, things that happen in trial that you can't prepare for. And I, and I read this at opening and I smiled. I saw, you know, you had your PowerPoint or whatever set up and it didn't work. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so you know, we all have nightmares about this. Um, so tell me what happened and how you dealt with it. Yeah, well, it ended up, you know, okay. So, I mean, I've always said, I don't know how you feel, David, but, I, you know, I, I, I like, I hate the whole exhibit piece. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Like, it's in the old days before it was all electronic. Like, I just feel like that makes me, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night, not the opening statement, not the examinations, like just set, you know, in the old days, setting up the easel and having it fall, like things like that. So uh, this is all, you know, in the federal court now, it's everything's electronic. So there's a screen, all the jurors can see it. It goes. So I, I start talking and I have a, I didn't have a huge one, but I had, you know, slides to go with my opening. And it, uh, it just, it, 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 it wasn't working. And so I said, yeah, that's what I said during, during my whole, right. Um, and so I started to, you know, I just, I, I just blew by it. Fortunately, my paralegal, who's a lot smarter than I am from the back of the courtroom, sussed out the problem 
and came up to council table and fixed it. So it, it ended up oh. working. The bigger surprise though, and th this was way worse. And this isn't, this doesn't show up in the transcript for whatever reason, I guess, cause it was just not talk. So I, and well choreographed that I wanted the jury to see the client's wife and kids, that they were there, kind of important, humanize them. This is a guy, this isn't the monster that the government is portraying. And I'd act, you know, spoken with the family, explained how it was going to work. And when I went to introduce the wife, I said, his wife's here and nobody stands. And I said oh, it like three nice. more times. And it turns out that my client's wife had chosen the beginning of my opening to go to the restroom. Oh no. So it was this awful. And I mean, that <laughs> was way worse than the PowerPoint because I was just standing there and it was just so awful for so many different reasons. But I will say this, one of the things, I mean, there, there, you know, a few things like that happen. And I think like early on in my career, you know, I, I, I probably just would have been a, a wet puddle when that happened. You know, I just wouldn't. Have, but you kind of learn that you've just got to go on. Yeah. Um, and you've got to act in front of the jury like it doesn't matter. Because the jury's looking, especially early in the trial, they don't know you from anything. And, and if they see kind of like, you know, you don't want to perceive any weakness and you want to show that no matter how bad something looks, it's not bothering me. Right. It's not going to the ultimate issue of my client's guilt or innocence. So. You've just kind of got to roll with it. And I think that's something that just comes with experience. So when does she, when she comes back in, do you say, there she is or what happens? No, I didn't. I, the, the courtroom was so packed. They had, I mean, this, they had an overflow because this was, you know, hyper, I didn't even see her. I didn't see her come back in. I just, I, I you know, I sort of, really? I had a, I had a stern conversation with her out in the hallway. After. <laughs> I bet she felt so bad. Um, so one of the things I saw that happened in opening is, you know, the theory was this wasn't a bribe, this was a loan and it gets paid back. And the government at the end of the day freaks out, says, you know, we don't know, we weren't told about this. We didn't get any documents. How does that play out? Are they able to keep out the documents and, and what happens with loan art? Yeah. So, so this was, I mean, this was like the best, right? So one of the things that happened uh, after indictment, but before, you know, before the trial was that my my client's um, mother passed away and he received his inheritance. And it, it had always been his contention that the understanding was that he would pay the father back with his inheritance. And so that happened. And so we assumed and the government was on notice of that because that's what he told Harvard. Okay. So this wasn't like something that was made up after the fact. So we, we assumed Harvard would look into this and, and figure, I mean, the government would look into it and figure it out. But as discovery was going on, we were, the, the lawyer, the defense lawyers were all talking to each other and saying, you know, they, they may not realize this. So when, when he, so he did, he did make the payment. And then when it came time for us to provide reciprocal discovery, and the rule is, if you're going to use something in your case in chief, you know, you need to you need to produce it. So if we wanted to show the check as an exhibit, we wanted the jury to see the check, we would have had to produce it to the government. But what we did was we strategically, the defense lawyers got together and said, you know, how awesome would it be 
if the government opens on a theory that these were bribes and fails to mention to the jury that they were paid back because they don't know. And so right. we decided we're not going to we're not going to give them the check. And the risk is that we can't use the check as affirmative evidence, but it doesn't mean we but we can have people testify about it. And it had already been determined that the wives were going to testify. Um, and especially our wife was was necessary because she touched every single aspect of, of, of the case. So the government basically freaked out because they thought they were hiding this. And, you know, we just explained to the judge, look, we know our obligations. We're not we're not looking to introduce any documents. We want to prove it through testimony. And the government like sort of didn't see that coming. And when the judge looked at them and said, well, what's your response to that? They kind of stammered and said, well, if that's what they're going to do, I guess they're, they're allowed to do it. <laughs> and then the bet. So I think the best part was, and this is kind of an evidentiary thing, but so when I called my client's wife and she testified about paying it back and I, you know, I think the jury believed her, but just to kind of have the extra evidence, even though we couldn't show the check, I asked her, what was the exact amount down to the penny that she paid back? And she said, I can't remember. And I said, well, is there anything that would refresh your recollection? <laughs> and she said, yes, if I could see a copy of the check that I wrote, I would know the exact amount. And so we did, the, the jury didn't see it, but they understood. I said, okay, let's, let's, let's show Miss Phillips the copy of the check that she wrote to Miss, that she and her husband wrote to Fantastic. Miss. And so it's at the end of the day, you know, and I, I've always thought that sometimes people put too much emphasis on, they think every single piece of evidence has to be attached to a document, but that's not the case. I mean, this was clear that what is the, the jury now knows there is a check. We're not seeing it, but the government can't argue it doesn't exist. So it's sort of undisputed that it exists. What a great moment and what a great piece of trial strategy. I just, I love hearing stories like that. Amazing. So let me ask you this. The wives testified, the kids testified. Did did the clients testify? And, and what was that like trying to make that decision? They 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 didn't. Always a tough, right? Always a tough decision. And David, I know you and I have talked about this. And I think you and I sort of fall on the side of, so, some people think that a criminal defendant should never testify. Right. I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I, I think that just, no matter how many instructions you get, a jury wants to hear from the defendants. I know they did in this case. I, I, I thought that that was, you know, going to be the biggest problem we had. I mean, without getting into too much of the details, this case took a huge toll on my client. And, you know, again, he's not old, but he's, you know, not a young guy. And I, I just, we, we just felt that his, his memory was such, his recall of events was such that I, I don't think he, I don't think he would have been a good witness. And we were only going to put him on, frankly, if we felt that this case is lost and we might as well, you know, kind of throw a Hail Mary. And, and, and we felt we still had a fighting chance. So we didn't we didn't put him up. And, and your co-defendants, children, those boys, when they testify, I mean, what's the cross of them? What does the government do with those two boys? So the government was actually pretty smart and they didn't go after them hard. What they did was, I think, kind of the classic thing that you do when a defendant calls witnesses and you're not really challenging their credibility, the government just kind of used them to remind the jury of their case. Like, 
you know, showing out, well, the boys, you didn't know that your dad was, you know, helping, was making these payments to Coach Brand, you know, whether the loans or not. Didn't know that he bought his house. Like all, all of those kind of things. The mistake the government made, because I actually thought that they had the right tone on those crosses. They didn't really go after the kids. But throughout the trial, the government opened up on the fact that this isn't about the boys. The boys did nothing wrong, whatever. But they couldn't help themselves. And so the younger son ended up not having as good a, a good as good a fencing career as the older. So I fenced all four years, you know, but wasn't a regular starter, blah, blah, blah. And the government, even though they kept saying they weren't going to go after the kids, the government did attack the younger son's credentials, which was a mistake, one, because I don't think the jury liked it. And then two, it allowed us to get in all of this like kind of other stuff to rebut how good he was that otherwise might have been right. irrelevant and just kind of bolstered the younger son. And the young the younger son was actually one of the best witnesses I've ever seen. You know, he had all of this personality. And I think the jury really did not like the fact that the government was taking shots at him because he wasn't a starter, you know? Really good, really good stuff. Um, real quick about the closing. I saw in the closing, you know, the government was stressing that your clients needed money and, and they talked about some of these documents that are way old emails between your client and, and his wife. And uh, I love when you talk about the slow cooker email and how that's not a, a not an email about desperation. Can you tell, can you tell us? Yeah, about well, and this is actually another piece of strategy. I think you'll like it. I mean, so we were the government's kind of theory of motive was that my client was in, you know, finance death, desperate financial situation. They had they had a handful of emails with the wife. And I mean, I knew the government was relying heavily on this because they they littered the indictment with it. And I also knew it kind of had some public appeal because it was all over the Boston Globe articles about the case. Right. Um, we moved we, we filed a motion in limine to keep those out. And I told everybody at my firm, I'm like, look, we kind of, we, we, you know, for the record, we got to do this. I said, and co-defendants really wanted to, but I was telling everyone in my firm, I said, I hope we lose this. I said, because I think we can use this against the government. And everyone in my firm's like, you're crazy. These are like the worst text messages and emails I've ever seen. She's talking about how they have no money. And my, my, my client's wife, even, which she was freaking out about them, about having to testify about them. And I said, don't worry, we're going to have fun with these. Because I realized at the end of the day that it's a people on the jury are are going to have these same conversations with their husbands and wives. These were not like bribe emails. These were just people who from time to time, you know, had an overdraft in their checking account. Right. And sure enough, we had, I mean, with that whole slow cooker thing that came up first on cross-examination. And the reason I brought it back on closing was the jury was cracking up when I, that was a, that was an email that the government showed my client, my client's wife on cross and on redirect, I spent about five minutes on the slow cooker and the guy, like the jury was, was dying laughing. So I knew to bring that back and just to sort of poke holes and like, this is the motive. It's ridiculous. So the jury's laughing with you must feel good. Um, the jury goes out. How long are they out? So they were out. It was just the same day. They went out about, I think they were, they deliberated. They got in the morning. So they deliberated somewhere between five and six hours. It's the worst, right? When the jury's out. 
there, there's 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 no worse of a feeling. And then when you get the no, we're all just kind of hanging out in the lobby, right? And right right by the courtroom. And all of a sudden the clerk comes out and says there's a verdict. And I mean, I, I don't know about you, my heart's pounding about 8,000 beats, right, per minute. And, and you'll pretty, so we, we go there. And of course, at this point, you start, you know, I'm, I'm kind of telling the client, look, if it doesn't go our way, just, you know, keep your composure. We're going to keep fighting, all of that. And you realize the client had, had been pretty stoic throughout, but you can see he's really, at this point, obviously very nervous. And then what happens is in, 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 in our courthouse, the U, U.S. Attorney's Office is in the same building and they get word of it. And the entire U.S. Attorney's Office, there had to be 70, 80 people file oh. into the courtroom, standing room only to watch the verdict. And what happens is when you get news that there's a verdict, especially when you're standing right outside the courtroom, before the judge and the jury come into the room, you're there for about 10 minutes, right? It's the worst 10 minutes of your life. But in behind me, and I couldn't even look back, it, the courtroom is full. So it's, you know, client's family and then about 70 assistant United States attorneys. And it's a total party atmosphere for them, right? Totally clueless that people's lives are hanging in the balance. They assume, you know, they're going to get a guilty and they're just, there's all this laughter and they're just all joking around until the jury comes in and so and, it was kind of extra sweet to see them all slink out of the courtroom when it was over. I was about to say they slinked right out of that courtroom. Uh, they were gone. They were gone by the by the time I turned around, there was nobody left. In in one of my uh, one of my first trials, I had the same conversation with my client. You know, no matter what, keep a poker face. If we lose poker face, if we win poker face, we gotta stay professional. And the jury came back not guilty, and I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> up, and there was press who took my picture, and the client looking up at me was like a bewildered look because I had right. uh, keep a poker face. Um, so, so do you get to speak to the jurors after, or, or no? They don't do that in this district, so you 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 don't. And if you want, and, and it's that it's so tight here. I know it's different in other places. You don't get to speak to the jury. And if you want to go speak to them even afterwards, you need court permission. So it's not yeah. like it is in other places. I, because I, I, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm definitely curious. I'm, I'm very curious to kind of know, you know, you'd love, cause you always want to know, right? I mean, we tried a bunch of things and for the next trial, what worked, what didn't, it, it's probably different than I think. You should be able to talk to the jurors. I never understood there, there's that rule yeah. in the district. So last question for me, and then I'm going to turn it over to my students, which is, um, tell us about the celebration afterwards, what you guys do. Did you savor it? And uh, tell us a little about that. Well, yeah, well, it was it was perfect, right? Because, you know, so the, the trial went three weeks and at least at least a month before that, you know, it's sort of you're, you're working 24 seven on the case. And so this jur this verdict came in late in the day. I think it was December 21st. So, right. The timing couldn't have been any better right into the holidays. So. That and my 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 client went my client went home for his own family celebration. Uh, my I'm at a small firm. Basically, the whole, you know the whole firm went out and celebrated, and then later we had a nice celebration dinner. Uh, you know, with the client. Do you have Do you get free fencing lessons now, or or? Um, well, what I get what he gave me as a as a token of his appreciation. So I have a uh, an I I have a, a championship ring, Ivy League championship ring. Very cool. Very this is cool. a good kind right. of memento from the case. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I had a lot of fun with my old friend Doug and hearing those trial tactics uh, about how he got in the defense without putting in the documents and then reference a document. I thought that was really, really neat how the prosecutors had to slink out at the end of the trial. Just great stuff. Now we'll turn to some questions from my students at the law school, um, which I think you'll enjoy. Thanks again to Doug, and we'll be back soon with another episode of For the Defense. Perfect. My name is Alex. Um, my question for you is, you know, I was looking over the indictment and uh, the memo that the defense prepared, and it seems like on the face of the case that it's not immediately clear why this is a federal crime. And you would think that federal prosecutors have better things to do than prosecute something like this when people are being murdered and people are being sex trafficked. Um, so can you explain a little bit more about why, according to federal law, this was a federal crime? Was it because by accepting this bribe and by Harvard giving scholarship money to fencers that they were using the federal government's grants or it was kind of like stealing from the federal government what exactly yeah alex that's it's 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 a great it's a great question actually it kind of goes into one of our themes of the case but so for the two things so for honest services the reason that the federal hook is it's what's called honest services wire fraud but basically everything you know, interstate wires, but basically everything uh, these days constitutes that. So the the actual jurisdictional hook was that my client submitted these recruiting forms via email, and that's using that's using wires. So that that's the hook on the federal programs bribery. It's not even as it's not even as sort of tied in as as you might have assumed. So. It had not the the funds at issue had nothing to do with federal funds, but because Harvard receives more than ten thousand dollars a year in federal funds, and again this applies to basically every school in the country, any agent of Harvard who makes an a, what they call an official act, and in this case the official act was submitting his recruiting form, that becomes a federal you know, a, a violation of this federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 666 federal program. Even though there right. were no lies on the on the form itself, right? I mean, did the government, right. there were any lies on the actual form? No, no lies, no, no lies on the form. But the government's theory is even though the form itself was truthful, it was kind of the fruits of, a, of an illegal bribe. Um, and so but you're right, Alex, like there is what we I mean, we haven't talked about. There were some very, 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 very damning texts and emails that my my client sent, which is you know, which is why the case got indicted. Um, but we 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 figured that a lot of jurors are going to think exactly what you just thought, which is sort of why are we here? So we were hoping that, like what I always said, you know, when when we were kind of preparing for the case, was look, I'm not sure. Maybe if we're lucky, we can convince every juror that this wasn't a bribe. But I at least want to be able to get I want jurors on this jury who think, but even if this was a bribe, he he did what he would have done anyway. And kind of why are we here? Why are you wasting our time? And, you know, again, without talking to the jury, I don't know. But I think it was probably some combination of those. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alex. All right. We got another um, student. Tell us your name 
And we have, this is a special one because she worked on another one of these cases. So go, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I actually worked about what you were just talking about, the whole like 666. So I worked on research about like defining um, what benefits are under that statute. So like I, I was working on the Corey case, the Georgetown case. So like whether if you're receiving grants as like under Pell Grants, like if that's how the government is defining receiving federal funds, is that really for students versus the school yep. and stuff like that, which would have been a great appeal, but thankfully we didn't have to go that way. So it was all good. <laughs> but um, actually, my question was um, um, looking at your case versus the dad's case, you were saying before about how your client obviously had um, kind of voice facts in his situation. So I was just wondering if you could talk about how you developed your theory of the case. Yeah. And by the way, that, it's really interesting about those Pell Grants because we did a jury instruction basically saying that like Pell Grants aren't enough. And so the government had to scramble. We, we were going to a po like they wanted us to uh, stipulate to that to, to, the, to that element. And then the government went out and found a lot of other non Pell Grant money that Harvard got, which kind of killed the, the, the Pell Grant argument for us. But <laughs> yeah, so look, the, 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 the clearly the you know, there were we had some good facts, but the worst facts for us were that my client sent a lot of texts uh, to the, the, the you know, cooperating witness or snitch, whatever you want to call him, that, you know, just look awful. Right. Like it looks they, they, they it's like he took the it's like he took the federal bribery statute and cut and pasted it into some of these texts. And and so that, you know, obviously you're not going to have a federal trial if all the facts in that situation. So, you know, what we really did was we, we tried to put those into context and say that, you know, what he, because like everything else, they were, these were texts, they weren't long things. It was sort of, you know, we, we, so we made the argument that, look, the government's taking these out of context. When he's talking about financial support, he's not talking about personal financial support. He's talking about support for the program. And we, you know, we're able to elicit a lot of evidence that he was under incredible amounts of, you know, incredible amounts of pressure uh, to raise money. So that 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 rang true. And some of the language he used in those text messages that sounded just so awful, we were able to show that he used the same language in innocent emails, you know, years earlier. So th there was that piece. Um, and then, I mean, in, in my in my closing, what I tried to relate to the jury, which I, you know, I think is relatable to most people is look, when you throw up all of like you throw up these three or four text messages and you put them together, they look horrible. But that's kind of not the way the real world works. And imagine, you know, in this day and age when everybody is just texting or, you know, some kind of messaging constantly, you know, imagine being on a, a trial, a criminal trial, um, and having the government just pull out, you know, four text messages of who knows how many thousands that you've sent and being judged on those. And, and there were a few in our case where that when we kind of made the point about, look, he's, you know, he's using this innocently in other, in other contexts, the government would point out, well, look, the wording is a little bit different. You know, they would do that on cross-examination. So I also pointed out that, you know, imagine that being done and then imagine that your, these text messages aren't being sent in your first language. And and my client is fluent. Look, he's he's been here for over fifty years, but the, you know, it, a lot of times, no matter what, 
you know, when, when a language isn't your first language, even when you're fluent, you know, you're, you're not quite perfect. And I, I can attest, frankly, that's the case with, with my client. Um, so that, that's really, that's kind of how we got around that, that, that particular, um, issue. Now, the one thing, as I said, we worked really closely with co-defendants. And so we didn't, we, we tried to be very respectful of each other's defenses, but in their closing, and this just felt like a, a, you know, a stab in the heart. I understand why they did it, but the dad's defense lawyer pointed out to the jury that like there weren't any text messages from his client that like they saw. And, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, especially because I think a lot of juries, there's a natural human tendency to want to split the baby, you know, in one way or another, how do we kind of find a compromise solution? And so I was terrified that the compromise solution would be not guilty to the father and guilty for the coach. That that would be there. There's nothing worse than that. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing worse. So right. That, I mean, that would just be right. Everyone's thinking like, oh, well, the other guy won. Why did you lose? What's, yeah, why you, you saw Brooks. Yeah, why are you the worst lawyer in the world? How could you lose that? Right. All right. And, and that was a real possibility here, David. I mean, that you know, I, I didn't. You know, that was one. Yeah, I didn't want to voice to people, but that did keep me up at night. Because I thought that was a real possibility. And, and, and I'll say in the jury research we did beforehand, and they don't hear the whole case. So it's always, but the father came off as much more sympathetic than, than our client did. Right. But I think we were able to change that at a trial and they were equal. So. Hi, Mr. Brooks. My name is Mitch Lehein. Uh You touched Hi. on it a little bit earlier about um, after your client was indicted and in the, the meeting you kind of had to decide whether to take it to trial. Um, I'm just curious about your strategy in those type of meetings when you're advising a client where, like you talked about, the, the court of public opinion was very much, I'm sure, against him at the time. Yeah. That conviction uh, that this wasn't a bribe at all. But were there other motivating factors in that advisement and just normally how you go into a meeting like that? Yeah, th- those are really tough meetings. Um, and, you know, they're just, you know. You're kind of, you know, laying it out. I mean, it, 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 it's probably kind of a boring answer, but the key to a meeting like that is you just need to be so truthful and transparent with the client and you need to explain to them sort of every step along the way, sort of like, okay, here's what a trial is going to look like. Here's what a, you know, here's what's going to happen. Here are the risks. You know, here are the potential rewards. Here's what's likely to happen if you, um, you know, if you plead guilty. Here's, you know, what sentence you're likely to be looking at before and after a trial. Uh, and again, in, in this case, it ended up being a little bit easier than in a lot of cases. Because when he found out that the only way that he could really get a good quote deal would be to admit that that he did what the government was saying and cooperate against the co-defendant. He just said, well, that's easy. It didn't happen. I can't do that. I'd be lying. And so it, it, it's kind of that that's a lot easier than it is, you know, in, in, in a lot of other cases. Makes it makes it much easier when the client's like that. Thank you. All right. We got got another question coming. Hi. Uh, so I was hoping to talk about the jury selection process and what you were looking for there versus what you were like trying to avoid. Yeah. Know, how many people did you have to strike to get what you were looking for? Yeah. So, and we got, so 
this varies by district and it varies by judge, but our judge basically said, this is not a complicated case. You're not getting basically any information about these jurors other than the standard questions. We had filed a motion for a jury questionnaire with all these questions. We want as much information about the jury as possible. And this judge said, nope. And he basically, we, so we, we had very little. So there, there are the standard questions. So what we were looking for, and it's more art than science, but we were looking for, and again, some of it was based on research, but a lot of it was based on that. We were looking for more blue collar jurors because we had the sense that blue collar jurors aren't going to view this as their crime and they're not going to care about Harvard. You know, I mean, Harvard's kind of a huge employer and that kind of thing around here. So it's a big name. We didn't want anyone affiliated with Harvard because we didn't, you know, we didn't know. And we, we were sort of told by some of the jury consultants that, you know, you want, you, you know, in a perfect world, you want, you don't want anyone who's, who has kids around the college admissions age because there's going to be this kind of, well, maybe they, they took my spot. But what was really interesting was that because these kids were qualified, there was this kind of weird role reversal. So during the, the way it works in this trial was the, uh, the judge asked, you know, there's like 80 jurors sitting in the, the courtroom, 80 potential jurors. And the judge asked certain questions. And if they, the answer was yes, they'd raise their hand and it would show some potential bias. And then when that process was done, he'd call them all up to sidebar and ask a few questions. And then you could either challenge them for cause or exercise one of the peremptory challenges to, to get them off the jury. And this one juror came up and she said, I don't think I can be fair because I'm a division one athlete and I used to practice next to the fencing school at my team. And I saw how hard those kids work. And like these cases, they just, they, they make me sick. And so obviously what she's saying is I can't be fair to the defense, but the four defense lawyers who were up at the sidebar, two for each client are, we're looking at each other and we're all thinking the same thing, which is, oh my God, when she hears the evidence about how hard these two kids worked, she's going to be on our side. So we're all kind of looking at each other, like to try to get each other's attention, like don't challenge this juror, which would be the natural thing to do. Yes. And sure enough, the, as soon as she sat down, the government says, we, we, we moved to strike her for cause. Wow. So it was this kind of crazy thing where it's like, she's basically saying, I can't be fair to the defendants. And we wanted her and the government didn't. And the judge struck her for cause. We were we were so mad, but the judge struck really? her for cause. They didn't even have to waste a peremptory on her. So really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we have three more groups of people. Um, we'll go here, here, and then here. And then we'll we'll then we'll turn it to we'll we'll uh, go back to class. So thanks, Doug, for giving us all this time. We have three more questions for yeah. you. And my name is Jerry. I appreciate you being here with us today. Um, I just want to ask a little bit about the the bribe versus loan situation. I know you mentioned the check and testimony. First of all, did the check predate any investigation into your client? And secondly, did any documents, whether it be texts or emails, exist between your client and uh, the parent that said this was a loan or did that just not exist? Yeah, no, great question. So no, the check, the check predated trial, predated trial, but postdated the 
you know, postdated the charges. So we knew that this would only get us so far, right? Because the government could say, look, you know, isn't that convenient? Now, he had told Harvard about this beforehand. So then, yeah, the second piece, you're, you know, you're seeing kind of the why this the payback was helpful, but it wasn't the, the end all be all because there was there was nothing in writing memorializing this. So there was no loan documentation and there were no texts or emails between the clients. And fortunately, we had evidence of the co-defendant's generosity and the fact that he had loaned money to friends before without any documentation. Or in one case, there was documentation, but the, the guy said, but and the person testified said that he loaned money to said there was only documentation because I asked for it. The government fought like hell to keep out evidence of his other, you know, past generosity. And it was one of the, you know, two or three most hotly contested issues at the trial. The judge actually took a break for about two hours in the middle of a trial day, you know, researched the issue and came back and said, we can get it in. He let in about 90% of it, I'd say. And that was huge because it was sort of the one piece of evidence that showed, okay, well, maybe it was, uh, you know, maybe there is something, something to this. And there was also some testimony so that the co-defendant was a, uh, originally from China, now an American citizen, but there was some testimony from a couple of witnesses that this was, you know, sort of a, a Chinese cultural thing that if a, if a uh, friend asked you to loan him money and you say no, it's sort of an insult. And All right, that was great, thanks. So we have two more, are you guys together? You wanna, no, separate. Yes. Okay, so we have three three more questions then. All right, one, and then we'll we'll finish up. Thanks, Doug. Uh, um, I wanted to ask like about your trial strategy with some other some more of the bad acts that they had alleged in the indictment because they were saying in the indictment that you know um, the co-defendant uh, Mr. Zhao was paying off car loans and student loans and tuition, paid for the condominium, paid for the house. Like, how did you, what was your strategy in explaining some of these, what seemed like very bad facts? And then yeah, well, and, and they were bad facts. So there were three, yeah, when you get, so it, sort of one of the just worst facts at all is there were three types of, of bribes that the government alleged. And so the problem was, it's sort of like we had an answer for all of them but it, we, I was very worried that it would start to feel like, well, like, well, you've got an answer for everything, but it's all kind of, yeah. So the first was the foundation. You know, if that if you saw anything about that, that there was this kind of foundation to foundation loan. And we just had great facts on that. The fact that our client never, you know, they didn't pocket any money. So our theory on that, the and, and the government's theory on that, and, and the, this is a mistake and you've got to hold, you know, opposing counsel to things like this. The government in its opening said the reason that my client set up a foundation to, quote, accept the bribe was that there, there would be no fingerprints, which was a huge mistake because we were able to show that this because of the foundation, everything was documented. So there were so many fingerprints and we just it was great. Got to use that, just hammered, hammer the government on that in closing to make it look like they didn't know what they were talking about. All of those payments um, other than the house, that was a separate one, but all of the mortgage payments, et cetera, 
the the so the theory was these were loans and it was made to help clear up effectively help clear up my client's financial situation as balance sheet so that they could go you know get get a mortgage and buy a buy a condominium in Cambridge which they were looking to do and you know what we did was we you know it just sort of one of the theories was don't fight it look these these payments happened we have to embrace it in front of a jury and again we got a little bit i think we got a break because the loan stuff as i mentioned the last question it only got us so far because the loan was repaid at, you know after he was charged and there was no documentation so it was definitely something that you could see not everybody's going to believe that but the best thing that happened to us is the government not doing their homework and not knowing that it had been paid back. So what we argued to the jury was they're hiding that from you, right? The government doesn't want you to know about this. Why doesn't the government want you to know all of the facts? So again, I think on that, the best we could do was look, this was a loan payment. It's all been paid back. Even if you don't, you know, even if you don't like it. And I, 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 I did a lot of that point to another thing, because I knew some of the jurors just aren't going to like the fact that there's a financial transaction between the government and, and so she said, look, you know, the, these, the, this was paid back kind of a no harm, no foul. The worst, though, so the worst. So, I, 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 you know, I felt very good about the foundation and I felt pretty good about the loans. The house was the hardest piece yeah. because <laughs> there's just no doubt that he paid too much for the house. And it just, and it, like in this day and age with Zillow and all that, it just feels like it's so easy not to overpay. And, you know, we had looked into it and it looked into it. Is there any argument he didn't overpay? And there was none uh, under the circumstances. But I will say another thing that helped here is again, the government kind of overshot. So, and sorry if this is taking so long, but this is kind of the overarching of the, the case. So one of the, one of my favorite moments at the trial was the government called the Needham town, that's the, the town where this happened in, which coincidentally is where, where I, I grew up. So I, I know the town very well. And they called the Needham town assessor. And, and he was, he should have been a brutal witness for us because in real time, back in 2016, his notes reflect that the house sale made no sense. So he wasn't looking at it after the fact. He said this was this guy overpaid for it. Um, and so the theory at the trial was, look, he overpaid for it, but it was just because you know you didn't do their due diligence. Our client had this old appraisal, and if you use that appraisal, you know you'd get to the million dollars that he paid. But again, it was definitely the weakest part of our case. But this guy gets up on the stand and to try to show how allegedly bad shape the house was in. He says, oh, my God, I remember this. And I remember walking in and I thought the I thought the overhang above the front doorstep was going to fall down and kill me. And so I so I went during cross examination. I didn't really have much to cross this guy on until he said that. And I said, I said, you know, Miss blah, blah, blah. I said, you you seem to have a very vivid recollection of this, this porch thing. Yeah, yeah, and I said, and you just be clear, you, you, this, this was during an inspection that you, you did seven years ago in 2016, right? And I, he said, yeah, and I said, but you have such a vivid recollection, and he was so proud of himself. So himself, he said, oh well, 
you know, Mr. Brooks, if, if, if you had had something as dangerous as a porch, almost porch overhang, almost falling down on your head and killing you, you'd remember it too. And he kind of sat back and he had this grin on his face like he thought he just won the case for the government. And so I said, I would, I totally agree with you. I said, if that had in fact happened, I would remember it very well, which is why I'm wondering why during all of your previous meetings with the government, you failed to mention that to them. Awesome. And he just kind of like stood there and he obviously didn't realize that like we get reports of his interviews with the government that they have to provide to us. And it was like, it turned to this perfect government witness. And, you know, I could, unfortunately, the way that this, this courtroom was set up terribly, so I couldn't see the jurors while I was questioning, but I could hear the scoffing in the background. And I was like, that's all I, you know, that's all we need right. to do. And it's kind of like, I think we just neutralized the house a little bit, which is all I was, you know, the best we could do. Great. So those are kind of theories on a lot of the bad facts. We have two more for you, Great. Two more for you. Hi. Hi. Uh, so my question is, did you ever feel like your side was at a disadvantage um, because of either the stuff in the media or because of like, you know, dealing with a government that has like unlimited power to sort of do whatever they want? Um, did you ever feel, or how you dealt with this? I was wondering how you dealt with this at all during the trial. If you yeah, I, 100%. And I think a, a, as a defendant, you're almost always at a disadvantage. I mean, they win the government and federal criminal trial. I don't know the latest stats, David, but they, they don't bring cases that they don't think they're going to win. And unfortunately, you know, they, they, they win most of them. So I thought we were at a I thought we were at a, a big disadvantage. Um, I do think that, you know, it, and the media was brutal. The Boston Globe was was brutal on this case. Um, but I, I, I also think that public sentiment had changed a little bit. You know, the, these kind of cases, you know, when the Varsity Blues first hit in March 2019, people were in an uproar. I think people have kind of forgotten about it. And I also think that some people, the people who are aware of it, I, I, I think we, we we tried to just, again, portray how good these kids were and how they belonged. So we tried to, without actually saying it, tried to distinguish it from the other cases that they had read about in, in, in the paper. But we were certainly hoping that these jurors had not, you know, had, had actually listened to the judge and had not gone back and Googled all the stories about the case because the Boston Globe stories were very, very prejudicial to us. I hope they did a series on, on the acquittal afterwards. I bet you it was like a small little, small little side note on page. It was so, I mean, like somebody told me a, a saying that, that that's so true. It's like the more you know about a subject, the less you recognize it when it's written about in the newspapers. Yeah. And the Globe especially, like, after a day of trial, it was like they it was like, how would you not write about X, right? Like the best thing that happened today, but it was helpful to the defense. So the, the Globe didn't write about it. It's amazing. The press coverage in these high profile trials, most of the defense lawyers that I speak to all say the same thing, which is they read the article the next day and they wonder, like, was that reporter in court? They're only reporting on like the one bad fact that came out instead of the good facts. It's 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 unbelievable. And I don't really understand it because I feel like the better story is, right. you right. know, because it's unusual that like, you know, we put on a defense. Right. We 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 had a weeks long defense case, which 
a lot of times doesn't happen. That's that's a better story. But I think also there was a Boston Globe. Uh, the guy who wrote the, all the Boston Globe stories was called to testify over the Boston Globe's objection. So I kind of feel mm-hmm. like and his, and his articles had been so against us. I kind of feel like the Globe people felt like they were almost protecting him by taking the government side. It's uh, it's one of the reasons I think jurors get attacked so much after these trials is because the public reads these reports. Yes. But a jury acquit based on these facts when when those aren't the facts. I've said that I've had the same thoughts so many times. That's exactly what happens. All right, last question. I promise I'll get you out of here by seven. So last question for you. This will be kind of quick. Um, so with all the texts and the emails, I know you said some of them were pretty bad, but like reading the indictment, some of them seem pretty bad, but how cherry-picked were those and how much did the government really try and focus their theory of the case on that? So they tried to focus their theory on it a lot. I mean, during their closing, they, whenever they showed them, the, the prosecutor would say like, you could find him guilty on this, like standing alone. This text alone is the evidence of the bribe. Um, all right. Well, I mean, <laughs> so how cherry picked were they? I mean, we certainly argued they were cherry picked. But. I mean, they were just the worst text, so I don't really know how cherry picked they were. Uh, they weren't. Un- I'll say this. They were not, you know, now that the case is over, government has no rights of appeal. They were not unfairly cherry picked. They were just really bad. They were really bad texts. But what I do think, and this happens in every case, and I really meant this when I said it before, is so the cherry pick thing is, you know, that's that's arguable. But but what is true is that they 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 are texts that you know you, you you send and you know, they're not letters. Nobody sat down and, and wrote it and then you rewrite it and you read it. It's not like a paper that you hand in in class. It's a text message. It takes a, a second to send. Um, right. So, I, you know, I, I think it, that's how they're cherry picked. It's not like unfair that, oh, they didn't show all these other texts because then we would have had the right to show those texts. But it's just it's taken out of context when the government flashes them up you know, and they flash them up on a screen and they got this kind of fancy presentation, you know, with like zooming in and zooming out. It's like, that's not the way the real world works. That's not how, that's not how people send text messages. So, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of how we tried to rebut that as best we could. Well, Doug, this has been fantastic. I want to thank you for spending the last hour and a half with us. I learned a lot that the story about showing the white, the check to refresh your recollection I will steal that in another thousand <laughs> percent. I loved it. Congratulations on a great trial, great verdict, and and uh, thank you again so much for for spending time with me. So my my pleasure, and and thanks for listening to me, everybody. And I'll, I'll just leave you with this before I hang up. Uh, your professor David Marcus is by far the best point guard in basketball that I've ever played. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't don't give up my secrets. All right, I'm gonna find you now. All right, Later. thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks, David. Take care.